Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Anton Koronek. Anton is a professor of economics at the University of Virginia, and he's also the economics lead at the Center for AI Governance. Anton has been writing for a number of years on the topic of automation and the economy and the labor market effects of it. He has recently turned his attention to discussions of GPT, written a very interesting paper about how academic economists can make effective use of GPT in their daily lives. In this conversation, we do touch upon that topic at the very end, but the majority of our time is taken up discussing the economic impacts of GPT and related technologies. I won't say too much about it beyond that basic introduction. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Anton. All right. So, Anton, you're an economist and interested in the impact of AI and automated technologies on the workplace. As GPT is obviously the flavor of the month, and it seems to be able to automate tasks that maybe previously we thought were not automatable. Mm-hmm. or wouldn't be automated for a long time. What's your sense right now? Are, is this a, a major disruptive technology or is it a more kind of incremental uh, improvement on things that were already kind of there? Um, and, and yeah, I mean, in big picture terms, like how disruptive of the labor force or the workplace do you think this is going to be? I think it's going to be one of the biggest disruptions that we have seen in labor markets and perhaps uh, on the scale of the industrial revolution. So I think uh, it it will be at least as big as let's say electricity uh, when it comes to reorganizing uh, the workplace and reorganizing the economy. Uh, But of course, the funny thing, it is actually the result of a very long and incremental progress in the field of AI at first, deep learning since the early 2010s, and generative AI over like the past five years since when we really started to deploy language models. But yeah, they haven't been particularly useful until all of a sudden last year. That's when it seems that they crossed some magical threshold and they are suddenly extremely useful for lots of different tasks throughout the economy. And then, of course, the most recent iteration that we just uh, have seen come out, GPT-4, is uh, yet another significant advance over what we had last year. Yeah, and obviously GPT is sucking up a lot of the oxygen and the conversation but it is just one of these models and there are many others out there competing there's kind of an arms race in a sense out there for the development of this this technology right mm-hmm. uh, yeah there are a bunch of other models out there uh gpt4 is hands down the most powerful that's publicly released and um i think google DeepMind. uh probably have equally powerful models that they're keeping under wraps. Uh, but it seems like uh, yeah, those two companies or ecosystems, OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google DeepMind are clearly leading uh, in that whole race. Maybe we could, 
before we discuss the impact of GPT and similar that family of technologies on the labor market, maybe we could just take a step back and and frame this in the terms that economists usually frame it in terms of. So, like, how, how do you how do we think about the impact of automating technologies on the economy? I mean, one of the kind of main debating positions, if you like, out there amongst economists. Yeah, so I would say uh, it's been really hard for economists to deal with this new technology, because in some ways we have spent the past 250 years trying to explain to people like the Luddites why they don't get how automation works and why automation is always good for the economy and so on and so forth. So uh, the standard position in economics traditionally has been automation is something that's good because uh, it allows the available pool of labor to focus on what is left and thereby make our economy more productive and have large output. Now, over the past 10 years or so, the debate has become a little bit more nuanced. And um, in a series of papers, for example, by Darren Achimoglu, um, uh, they have shown that uh, technologies uh, can be viewed as either complementing or substituting for labor. And uh, they have actually docu documented uh, that a bunch of technologies, like, for example, uh, the rollout of industrial robots, has really had uh, the effect of being more substituting for labor uh, and thereby hurting the job prospects of uh, manufacturing workers, uh, less skilled workers in particular. So this has been kind of where the debate was, let's say, one year ago, before the rollout of these generative AI tools. Everybody was worried about uh, lesser skilled workers being left behind, in particular workers engaged in physical tasks. And uh, for the past um, four decades, Cognitive workers and higher skilled workers have been the big beneficiaries of technological progress. And now all of a sudden, drop in generative AI, which can perform so many of the cognitive tasks uh, that are of use in the economy. And it has really completely changed the game. Yeah, but let's just focus on cognitive workers or knowledge workers for the time being, and I might circle back to manual workers in a moment and the <laughs> prospects of, of automation there. Because I think there's an interesting point about, let's say, like different timelines for things. I mean, if we were having this conversation half a decade ago, we'd probably be talking about you know, the prospect of automated driving and how that's going to massively displace yes. <laughs> uh, blue-collar workers or whatever um, drivers. And that's a huge segment of the economy. But now we're talking about, you know, kind of more elite. Well, elite is not the right word. Um, highly skilled worker, highly educated workforce engaging in this kind of creative cognitive problem solving. But it, I know you'll know this, but like historically, you know, there's this idea sometimes attributed to Hans Moravec, you know, Moravec's paradox, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, David Order talks about Polanyi's par paradox, which is sort of the same basic idea, but yeah. uh, Moravec's paradox is like that. 
you know the the, the highly logical um kind of high intelligence activities like playing chess or something it actually turns out they're relatively easy to computerize or automate right. this idea and the what we perceive as being kind of lower skilled or lower physical activities like cutting somebody's hair you know that's actually pretty hard to automate or right? folding so laundry that, yeah so there's always been that like tension but like even within cognitive work let's say there is a distinction to be drawn and has been drawn by economists between routine kind of forms of cognitive work and these more sort of creative problem solving based forms of cognitive work so routine cognitive work has long been impacted by technology right there's been a massive hollowing yeah, out that's right. the kind of middle class middle uh, segment of the labor market and routine work but you're saying there's something different now with with gpt that it's getting the higher end is that the idea uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, yeah, we have seen uh, routine cognitive work uh, being automated for, as you say, many decades. Like, think of uh, secretaries who used to sit at typewriters and uh, type stuff. They don't really exist anymore. Uh, even the most high-powered executives uh, write most of their things on their own. Um, but yeah, what's different with this new generation of tools is uh, that they can actually creatively generate things, that they can um, employ uh, language in ways that are eerily human, and uh, that they can write things, draw connections, uh, do stuff uh, that we just did not really realize up until a year ago uh, that they could be relatively easily done by machines. So I think that's the big difference. Okay, so can you give an example of something that GPT or an LLM can do, which seems like sort of creative problem solving, highly kind of cognitive tasks that just kind of came out of the, side, out of the blue, like it's, it's something that we didn't think could be automated. So um, le let me tell the following anecdote. A couple of months ago, when I uh, was writing, I started to kind of put bullet points into uh, GPD 3.5, and I would ask it to write complete paragraphs based on that. And then I started to give it instructions in those bullet points, for example, come up with examples, uh, draw further conclusions, just to see what it does. And in many of the instances, it would actually come up with good examples that I hadn't thought of, draw conclusions that I had not thought of, and would really enhance kind of uh, my cognitive process with additional creativity. And um, if we look at, say, the difference between 3.5 and now GPT-4, it can do that on an even higher magnitude. But I suppose this then draws us back into the question of, you know, substitution, substitution versus complementarity, right? So, mm -hmm. um, what, what? So, I, I mean, I don't even know how to ask the question in a sense. But like, what do you think? What do you think GPT is going to substitute for? Or like, are there certain kinds of jobs or professions that you think are very clearly at immediate risk of displacement or replacement by 
this kind of technology? That'd be the first question. We can talk about mm. complementarity. Yeah. So um, a few months ago with GPT 3.5, I thought it has suddenly become useful for a vast range of people. And it's going to make lots of people more productive. Uh, but it's not quite at the stage yet where it can displace lots of jobs wholesale. I think this is going to change over the next year or two. Uh, GPT-4 now is a lot more powerful. And we see uh, increasingly uh, that companies are trying to really incorporate that into their operations. And uh, they're trying to roll out GPT-4 as, for example, an automated customer service representative uh, that uh, can really replace uh, the jobs of human customer representatives. Uh, we will probably see it in applications like sales. Uh, I assume uh, we will also see it uh, for uh, some journalistic functions, uh, probably not at like our top tier newspapers, uh, but stories uh, that are written for second tier newspapers, for example, uh, and that can now be written in an almost automated way. And yeah, the neat thing is uh, all these applications complement some activities, but they will also substitute for a large uh, quantity of jobs. And uh, so the concern is uh, twofold. First, uh, there's the concern about the transition. If let's say a big company lets go of 10,000 customer service representatives, even if they do find new jobs, uh, that's gonna take time and that disruption uh, causes uh, societal turmoil. And the second concern is, um, and that is all very much yet to be determined, uh, will the new jobs be jobs for the same skill levels, for the same types of people? Uh, or will large categories of cognitive workers actually be left behind? And I can see some arguments go in both directions, uh, but overall, I'm probably not too optimistic. Yeah, I mean, so it seems to me that um, there are certain kinds of, I don't know what we'd call them, maybe like cognitive intermediaries or something in, in the economy. Maybe like the, the sales reps are a good example of this, customer, customer service people are a good example of this. I'm thinking within a university context, there are certain kinds of administrators that right now perform to me very valuable functions, but I can see a lot of their functions being automated hmm. by the use of technologies like this, as long as it gets integrated with other kinds of apps or services. So there was an example actually that um, mm -hmm. Satya Nadella gave at the World Economic Forum. This is uh, the CEO of uh, Microsoft who, I don't know if they own, but they certainly fund uh, OpenAI to a large extent. Um, and he gave an example of like somebody using GPT in India to inquire about grants that you could get for, I can't remember what the grants were for, but let's say they were for like farm to develop your farm or something like this. Um, and he asked a question about it, got a response. 
and then they said well you know how can i how can i get one of these grants and or you say well you have to fill out this form and basically because it was integrated with other services you said well i don't want to fill out the form why don't, why don't you write the form for me i'll give you the kind of basic information and then you submit the application for me by you the program itself like so like like right now i think there's similar functions that are performed by administrators in my university let's say for applying for grants or research grants or organizing events mm-hmm. that i can imagine i say look i want to you know, I want to do all the following things. Like I want to, I want to book a room. I want to book accommodation flights for all these people. Um, right now I'm asking a human to kind of perform these things, but I can imagine like getting a, a service or a machine to do that. Or when I'm writing a funding application, I get a, maybe some assistance in how to format it and think about it. But I can imagine that being sort of largely automated in the relatively near future. So there's those, some of those kinds of intermediary functions that I think are maybe most ripe for automation in the near term future. That's, that's I can see that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think uh, in the end, um, the kind of scope of applicability for these systems is going to be a lot larger than just those intermediaries. Um, so I guess one of the big questions for myself as an academic economist is when will they be able to write academic papers? And I can tell you right now, they are certainly not at that stage yet, but they can already help me quite uh, a lot writing sections of papers, uh, even deriving mathematical models uh, when I look at the latest system, GPT-4. Yeah, and I will, we'll come back to how you use it yourself and how you think it can be useful maybe a little bit later on in, in the conversation. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask a question about complementarity. Uh, well, uh, so actually, let me ask another question first about substitution. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that's been true sort of recently up until maybe the sort of crunch in the technology sector has been that you know, there's a huge demand for highly skilled programmers. And programming is a skill, of, you know, they're setting up academies for young people to learn the skill of programming. Yeah. But one of the things that GPT does reasonably well is it'll generate pretty serviceable code right so it'll do you know oh, yeah. you can give it a, a natural language prompt and it'll write some code for you yeah so it seems like that that like ironically that which we thought was like a highly in-demand skill might be compromised to some extent or affected by this technology right exactly yeah there are some estimates that um gpt 3.5 already made programmers something like 50% or more more productive. So that means, uh, in principle, you can get the same amount of work done with two thirds of the people. Now, obviously, there have been kind of two forces happening over the past few years. First, the demand for programming work has gone up hugely and secondly the automation of programming work has also proceeded uh, very fast and um, yeah up until this past winter it seemed like the demand effect that we needed more and more code has been kind of the stronger one Uh, I have been wondering if part of the layoffs that we have seen in the tech sector during the winter uh, were caused by this increasing automation of programmers. And um, 
you know, one of the reasons why it's so good, why these systems are so good at programming is uh, because uh, the leading AI labs want to make these systems good at programming so they can help them make progress faster and write the next version of their models faster uh, so that they can reach their ultimate goal more quickly. So as you say, like the, the classic argument is was in economics, which is evinced by the so-called you know, Luddite fallacy is that, okay, you know, technology will displace or replace some workers, right? but it'll create other opportunities. The economy will grow. And in a sense, there'll be more employment. There'll be more work out there for people to do. And that's sort of been the, as you say, the dominant view until recent times. And so when it comes to, let's say, the complementarity effect, well, like whether GPT creates, uh, so it just pushes humans into a complementary space where they specialize in certain tasks and they work with the technology to become more productive and that generates more yeah. opportunities down the line. And, like we, and we've seen this happen in wave after wave with other technologies in the past, like that right. new jobs come on stream that we wouldn't have dreamt of 50 years ago. And at the I moment, it's like one of the new jobs that seems to be coming on stream is something like a prompt engineer. Yes. So that that maybe talk about that example, like because one thing that's interesting about the prompt engineer is that it's a different skill set to let's say the programmer, right? Because you're not it's not so much about the technical coding ability; it's actually about how you can sort of manipulate natural language prompts to make it the system more effective. So it seems it's like it's kind, rewarding yeah, it's different it's kind of an in-between thing between programming and natural language. Um, it is, in fact, you can call it programming with natural language. And yeah, that has been uh, certainly a new uh, job devised by these systems. Um, now, I would say the most useful thing, uh, the most useful way about thinking about the labor market impacts of technologies is not to count jobs created and uh, jobs destroyed as we are kind of naturally inclined to do because for us as individuals, a job is kind of the most natural unit when we look at the labor market. Uh, but ultimately, if you look at like the long run historical average, uh, the number of jobs is driven by the number of working age people because on average people have always wanted to work. And um, so if you have this uh, economists call it a fairly inelastic labor supply, meaning people are just working period. And that quantity of people willing to work is not very much affected by demand. Uh, and you have fluctuations in demand. What is most reflected in is not the number of jobs that we can see, but actually wage levels. So if you look at the effects of past technological changes, for example, the routine replacing technological change of the 1980s, 1990s that we talked about before, it was reflected primarily in the wages of lesser skilled workers, and in particular in the US, lesser skilled male workers. Uh, on the other hand, the growing demand for, uh, let's say, cognitive work over the past two decades, that has been primarily reflected in growing wages for that segment of the population. 
And so I think what we really need to look out for going forward is how will these new technologies affect wages and how will they affect them in different segments of the labor market? Like for example, cognitive tasks, um, higher level cognitive tasks, more routine cognitive tasks versus physical tasks and so on. You said you're not very optimistic about the future here. Um, maybe like, let me parse that in a bit more detail. So not optimistic in what sense? And in the sense that this is going to lead to widespread unemployment or underemployment or wage reduction, and this is going to cause social upheaval. Yeah, Do you ultimately, see any calls for optimism with the rise of this technology? It's being I, I, driven by people who seem... Actually, you know, I suppose it's interesting that the people who are developing it, it's like Sam Altman is sort of, you know, he's a champion of the technology, but is also like talking about risks associated with it, which is kind of interesting, I suppose. Uh, but I think that might be more in terms of existential level risks, which is, is, a, is a popular idea in, in tech circles. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, this idea of kind of optimism versus pessimism, um, can elaborate on that. Yeah, I, I'm happy to. Uh, and I'll uh, say that even Sam Altman, for example, is very concerned about the economic consequences of this and the implications for labor markets. So uh, I think one lesson I have taken away from playing with these systems over the past year is that a lot of the cognitive tasks that we perform that seemed quite amazing to us can actually be performed relatively easily by machines. And that has been kind of a bitter lesson uh, for me from observing progress uh, in these fields. And yeah, so what's the reason for optimism? What's the reason for pessimism? I think uh, one of the sources uh, of uh, optimism for me is that if these systems can really perform so many, um, yeah, let me say human tasks, it means that our economy may actually be able to expand quite significantly. We may all become a lot richer and that definitely is a reason for optimism. So I expect there to be a very significant productivity growth over the coming few years. Uh, I expect it to be a, a larger boom than, say, the internet boom of the 1990s. Uh, on the other hand, the reason for pessimism is uh, if a lot of the things that used to be performed by our brains can now be done by machines, it means the market value of what we are currently paid for may decline quite significantly. And um, that means, so the economy is going to produce a lot more, uh, but there may be large fractions of the population, uh, the cognitive workers in particular, who may really lose out from this change. And there's going to be big redistributions, uh, big labor market disruptions. And if we don't manage them well, I believe it can lead to really significant societal disruptions. So that, I mean, that's 
premised on the idea that this will have a disruptive impact, the technology will be widely rolled out and used, right? That's Is there right. any reason yeah. to think that that mightn't happen? So, I mean, let's go back to the earlier example uh, of automated driving. So certainly the, a lot of the hype in recent times has been around that technology. Um, that, you know, I mean, Elon Musk is always promising Tesla users that they're going to roll out full automated driving this year. It's yes. Never quite happened. Somebody put together a, a montage of all the clips where he said this. Now, look, I mean, there could be a naivety here in the sense that they're making improvements in the technology all the time. And eventually the wheel reach point was suddenly like there's, you know, the, the, the second half of the chessboard effect, like in terms of exponential growth, uh -huh. but, right? It'll suddenly become so good that, oh yeah, we're in a different world. Like with GPT that, you know, GPT-2, you know, it was interesting, but it wasn't that impressive, I would say. But right. then with 3.5 and 4, it seems like, oh, we've gone undergone some sort of like phase transition. So that could happen with, auto, with automated driving. But so my point is that, you know, it hasn't quite happened with automated driving yet, even though everyone was predicting it would happen pretty mm -hmm. quickly. And I would also add, like, one of, the, one of the reasons that it hasn't happened, it mightn't just be technological, there's also there's been opposition to it, kind of regulatory opposition to it as well. At least in Europe, there has been kind of some pushback and resistance against that and problems with actually trialing it and experimenting with it in, in the real world. Is there any reason to think that something similar might happen with GPT, that there might be some roadblock that actually prevents it from being widely adopted? Uh, yeah, I think you're right that autonomous vehicles are kind of a really interesting example to think about uh, if we want to kind of make the techno-pessimist case, the case that this is not going to be that big of a thing. Um, and yeah, I agree with your interpretation that there have been um, kind of significant social challenges in the rollout of AVs. And in particular, in these systems, kind of navigating situations that uh, we humans are very familiar with, um, but because of their alien nature, they can't navigate. And now, even though by some measures they are supposedly safer than us, they still screw up in other instances that would be completely obvious to us humans, and that's why we don't let them drive. Um, yeah, so what would be the equivalent for um, large language models? And should we expect anything like that? I, I think you're right. We should expect, for example, the application of language models in, let's say, medicine or uh, a lot of functions of law to be really handicapped by this effect. And um, so... I recently had a conversation with a friend uh, who who kind of um, predicted, well, uh, within the next 12 months or so, we would probably have language models uh, that can give better medical advice uh, than uh, your average uh, primary care physician if you describe your symptoms, describe uh, what your questions are. But... I think uh, you're right. This is one of those cases where for regulatory reasons and liability reasons, uh, we would not roll out these systems widely. We would probably use them more as like an assistant 
to human medical personnel. And it would probably just expand the range of things that nurses, nurse practitioners, and so on uh, can do, uh, for which we don't necessarily need to pull in the doctors. And in um, fields where the stakes are high, like medicine, law, policing, I think uh, this is kind of a good model to think about. And uh, I would expect that the rollout of uh, language models uh, is still going to occur, but they won't be used in the short term to substitute for humans in those jobs. On the other hand, when there are tasks that are much lower stakes, like let's say, routine customer service or sales, what we discussed before, um, the cost advantage of these systems uh, is probably gonna make them uh, something that companies uh, just don't want to give up on. And I think we will have a lot more rollout. So I think one really big difference uh, with uh, autonomous vehicles is that uh, these language models have such a wide range of applications. Uh, and many of those applications are ones where uh, there aren't really life or death decisions like in driving or in medicine, and where there will be a lot of uh, kind of happy users uh, and uh, a lot of companies investing massively into getting those systems online. Yeah, and as far, I suppose in, inherent in that is like one, one of the major limitations of the technology at the moment is its sort of propensity for bullshit or as hallucinations yes. widely used. And part, like part of that is that the technology is not, does, like the, the underlying mechanics of it, as I understand it, is in a sense, in a sense, it's a very sophisticated predictive text engine. In so far as it's like scouring large bodies of texts and then figuring out what the ne the next most appropriate word is, like in a sentence. That's roughly what it's doing, right? So it's not right. actually trained yeah. to be, or it's not designed to be accurate. And it can sort of generate sort of hilariously bad factual errors or mistakes, and people have documented these widely. So as you say, in in high stakes dis disciplines or areas where that accuracy is crucial or important, there does seem to be a potential roadblock, at least with the current generation or iteration of the technology. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. So uh, the primary training goal uh, of these systems is to generate text. But uh, what I will say is, um, so in order to predict text and to predict text on this massive range of things like all the uh, terabytes of data that they have been fed in their training, these systems ultimately need to develop world models underneath. Because if you have a good model of the world, you, you're better at predicting text. And if you have really efficient optimizers, that's what you get. And so let's say GPD 3.5, for example, uh, it hallucinated quite a lot when I uh, asked it about uh, economics research. I asked those same questions to GPT-4 and there was really significantly less hallucination. So on all the examples that I had listed in my research paper uh, on language models in economics, uh, 
GPT-4 actually gave the perfect answer. Yeah, um, I mean, just another question like on, on limitations. Like, are there any reasons to think that there are scaling limitations or limitations in terms of the underlying infrastructure, environmental cost of the technology that we should be thinking about? Yeah, the scale of these systems is really ginormous and it's kind of mind boggling uh, that we are uh, at a point where training these systems costs uh, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, I, I uh, heard uh, Eric Schmidt talk about billion dollar training runs uh, on the horizon. And uh, so one thing that that tells us is uh, we can maybe continue with these advances for three or four more years or something like that. But then we are really going to um, run into like gigantic costs. And the question is, uh, if so, so there, there, there's two questions. One is, by that time, how will these systems compare with our human brains? If we look at just the physical complexity right now, they are roughly on par. And it's kind of interesting if you consider that uh, for many of us, when we first tried out ChatGPT, the experience was that this is eerily human-like. So yeah, the question is, let's say we continue uh, this kind of doubling of compute every six months uh, that has been happening for cutting edge AI systems for the past decade. Let's say we continue this for another three years. Will these systems have kind of cracked the level of general intelligence in humans? Or will we reach a ceiling and um, they will be below human capabilities for a long time because the resource costs are so high uh, that we just can't afford to advance further. Yeah, I'm, I'm conscious of uh, the time now. And I, I did want to ask you some questions about the use, how you use GPT yourself. Because so one of the things that you wrote recently is a paper outlining ways in which economic, economics researchers but I think as you, we were discussing off air, probably academic researchers more generally can use GPT in their sort of day-to-day -day lives. And then this is something of personal interest to me insofar as, um, you know, I've, I've encountered people tell me that I, that I should be using it more often than I am. And, but I don't, like, I just, I suppose I play around with it a bit, but I haven't really started using it. I, I was a co-author on a paper, which is now, probably going to be accepted but i won't say what the name of it is just in case it isn't um where we did generate an initial draft through a conversation with gpt now one problem was that that very quickly became kind of a trite idea like everyone, everyone was doing that so we we didn't want to right. do it anymore but actually like in the end the text itself the, the final article doesn't really contain anything that gpt or like chat gpt now the the version released back uh, in late 2022 um, mm -hmm. it doesn't contain really any of the text that are generated. I'm, 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 not, I'm to be honest, I'm not sure that that exercise was valuable at all in helping with the paper. I think you know, like one of the problems with 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 three point five, to me anyway, was that it sort of just generated very generic arguments or ideas, like oftentimes quite shallow. I would say, um, but maybe there are ways in which I, I should be using it, and also like the 
the fact that it produces very plausible sounding responses to things it strikes me as problematic in areas where I don't really know what it's talking about or I don't huh. feel like I can correct the errors in it. Um, yeah. It leads me to not, not so much trust it. And so I, I and, and suppose one, like one other thing, and this is probably a larger point, is that at least for me, like I almost never edit anything I write. And as far as like the first version of things that I write is usually the last version. Wow. Okay, so so a large portion, large part of writing to me is like planning it and the actual. I think through the process of writing, and it seems like one of the things that people are using GPT for is like to generate first drafts of things that they might then edit down and change into something better. Right. But like I, I hate that process, and I like I hate I hate looking back over things that I I read or that I've written. So it could be just a kind of unique or idiosyncrasy with me that I just don't. To me, the value of writing is more in the generation of it, the generation of the first draft. That's the thing that I enjoy. I don't like the subsequent editing and redrafting. So maybe the technology is just not fit to my cognitive style or something. But anyway, you you think there are lots of potential uses. So maybe you could talk about why I should be using it more often. Yeah, that's really interesting how you describe your writing process. Uh, I always tell uh, my graduate students, writing is thinking on paper. Uh, or I guess nowadays on a screen. Um, so I can kind of relate to it. But then again, when I write myself, I usually, um, so I, I write and rewrite the same sentence a couple times until I'm happy with it. And that, for example, is something that these language models are really good at. So uh, my most common use form is that I, brainstorm a couple bullet points about what I want to write and I tell the system to incorporate that into a full written paragraph and I find it really saves me some time. Uh, I like the brainstorming progress a lot more than the crafting it into beautiful sentences part and the systems can help with that. Uh, but it's not only writing. Um, so in this paper of mine, it's called Language Models and Cognitive Automation for Economic Research. And it's available on my website, uh, corinec.com. And um, I go through six different categories of work and describe a total of, I think it's 25 use cases within these six categories. Um, so I start with ideation. They're actually incredibly helpful for brainstorming, in part because they kind of give you what are the generic arguments that people make uh, for a particular idea or thought. And I agree with you there at this point, uh, at least at the point when I was writing the paper, that was uh, GPT 3.5 again, uh, they did not make path-breaking novel insights, uh, but you know, the way our human brains work is uh, we don't always have an overview of uh, the whole state of affairs. And I found it extremely helpful uh, to ask him what are the generic arguments for a particular point or what are the generic counter arguments? Because ultimately uh, that reflects kind of the state of affairs that we are writing our papers for, that we are in communication with. Um, so if I want to write about a new topic, 
I oftentimes ask ChatGPT, what are the counter arguments here? Because I want to hear them. And it's a lot faster and sometimes also a lot more honest <laughs> than if you ask colleagues for counter arguments to your thesis. Uh, yeah, so, so then the, the writing part is really helpful. Uh, I, I do this bullet points to paragraphs uh, method. Uh, it's also useful for editing, uh, for improving style, for criticizing style, and so on. Uh, sometimes it can be incredibly helpful uh, if you have, let's say, written a paper, you want to send out a few tweets, you can ask it, uh, generate five catchy tweets based on the following text. And it usually does a pretty good job. Uh, or you can say, write a blog post style summary of the following text. And then you have a blog post that you can publish somewhere that uh, kind of relates your paper to a different audience. You can ask it right in the style of a, of an eighth uh, grader to kind of make it a bit more accessible and less scientific. And so those are the kinds of tasks uh, in writing that it's incredibly helpful for. Now, um, when I uh, wrote my paper, I also asked it about a bunch of uh, questions in the context of background research. And that's where I uh, also encountered this hallucination that you were speaking of. So if you ask GPD 3.5 about references, it's going to just plainly make up stuff. Uh, with GPT-4, I really didn't find this to be a very significant problem anymore. So there's been a clear progress. Uh, but then the things in background research where GPT-3.5 even was useful was in summarizing text. So let's say you have like a five-page um, intro of a paper. You can ask GPT, what's the summary of this? Can you tell me one paragraph? Then you can ask follow-up questions on specific points if you want. It's also really good at translating, let's say, if you have sources in other languages. Um, and for kind of more generic uh, topics, it's also really good at explaining concepts. So this is not something where what I would use it for at the cutting edge of research. But let's say if I dabble in a field that I'm not really very familiar with, it can explain concepts really clearly in a really lucid manner, it can answer follow-up questions, so it can act a little bit like a tutor. And yeah, GPT-4, of course, can do this even better. I, mean, I know you've other uses of it, but I mean, let me ask a question about, about the two of those things, yeah. I say. If you're researching something, I'm writing something. I mean, let's say you're using it to research a class that you might teach on a topic that you're not familiar with. I don't know if you've used it for something like that. Like, what what do you think your kind of duties as a as an educator are? Right? Do you think like do you think you have a duty to go and check up to see whether what it's explained or says is true? So it gives you an initial draft or outline or of concepts or ideas or explanation of concepts. Do you think you have a duty then to kind of check it to make sure it's, it's verified that that's something that you should always always be doing if you're using the, the technology? So if I teach economics, uh, I think right now, yeah, I still have a significant duty of that kind. And I have to tell you, I haven't played around enough with GPD-4 yet. 
Uh, with GPT 3.5, I'll tell you, it makes enough mistakes that we should check it if we use it in teaching. With GPT 4, maybe not as much anymore. And you know, uh, then if you check it uh, a thousand times and 999 times it was correct, ultimately we won't find it very useful to check anymore. It's just kind of like, um, let's say 20 years ago, people said, well, if you find anything on the internet, you always have to check it before you use it. Nowadays, we kind of know uh, which things we can consume from the internet and we can trust it and which ones maybe we should check. And I think it's going to be similar. Uh, in some sense, uh, as these systems become better, I anticipate that there's going to be this whole range of tasks where we are going to know that they're good enough that we don't need to check them every single time, especially if it's not like high stakes, like in medicine. Yeah, I mean, that sounds, that sounds very plausible to me. I mean, like, you know, I don't I don't check to see if my calculator has been programmed correctly. <laughs> you know, right. Calculator, right. So uh, it's like, it's certainly with, with 3.5, it seemed to me that the error rate in kind of producing bullshit or hallucinations was sufficiently high for me not to trust it. As you say, it could be that. Yeah. Or if it's like 1.01% errors, then yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to default to, to trusting it in most instances. The, the other question I had is like when you're writing things with it, I mean, how, how do you feel about the publication of that or the, the claim that, that it's then your work? I mean, is it still the case that you think you're doing most of the work that it's right for you to claim authorship over it? Or do you feel like, oh, this is actually not... This is not really mine anymore. It's actually a co-authored piece or it's, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah. So what I do is I always disclose when I'm using these systems. Uh, but at this point, at least, I very much feel that like the driving ideas and the true intellectual contributions are still mine. And so I have no problem claiming authorship for it. And I view it kind of like a, a calculator. I don't know, maybe, you know, 80 years ago, people were thinking, hmm, if I use a calculator uh, or a more sophisticated computing device uh, in a scientific paper, how should I feel about my authorship in that? <laughs> and nowadays we, we think, well, uh, it's not even uh, worth the question, right? So, yeah, I don't think our comparative advantage is forming well-crafted sentences anymore. And um, right now, our comparative advantage is uh, to formulate higher level ideas and to check that the ideas are executed correctly. And um, I think that comparative advantage is what we will be increasingly focused on. Okay, let, let me just ask a question about education. So I'm probably going to do a whole other episode on the impacts on, on higher education. So oh, we well. don't have to pursue this in too much detail, but um, what's your thought on, on how we should be educating and, and assessing students now? And I, I know it's a big topic, like, but let's say... I mean, there's a couple of things here, like what, what skills should we be training or educating them with? Do you think it's incumbent upon educators now to incorporate something like GPT into their teaching? So in, in terms of like familiarizing themselves with the technology, but also then 
uh, training students on how to use it in an effective way. It was like you're doing in your paper, you're outlining the useful ways of, uh, of using the technology. And then I guess I connected to that. If we're still doing assessments in the traditional sense of like, you know, students produce work that we assess, do, do, do we change the baseline of what like a pass fail grade is now? So like if, if a student generates an essay that could have been generated by GPT 3.5 or something, it's that kind of shallow and it's sort of like, well, that's, you know, that's not going to pass anymore. You got to do, you got to have this higher level insight, more depth analysis. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I have uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this, to be honest, in part because I have two little kids and I'm thinking about what are we raising them for and uh, what are the skills that they are going to need or want when they are grown ups? Uh, they're just a couple of years older than yours. Uh, they're five and seven right now. And um, so the the kind of amazing thing is, uh, even if we froze all technological progress right now, what these systems can already do uh, is quite powerful. And I think it will never be the comparative advantage of my kids to write well-crafted sentences. And therefore, I seriously doubt that that in itself will be an important skill for them in the labor market or in life more generally. Now, there is this other part, which is, uh, as we discussed before, thinking is at some, uh, sorry, writing is at some level thinking. And I certainly still want them to learn how to think in a structured way and how to make arguments and so on. Uh, but I don't really care about them having uh, the capability to write in the most beautiful ways because uh, language models are almost certainly going to be able to do that better. Now, let me unfreeze the technological progress again. <laughs> And let's speculate what happens if this all continues for the next few years, right? Um, so if we if we think about, let's say, 150 years ago, our ancestors probably wanted their children to be as strong as possible so that they can work the fields and so that they can earn a living and so that they will be happy. And if you look at your parent and my parents, they wanted us to get a good education so that we can get a good job and we can earn a living and so that we can be happy. And I guess what's the same with your kids and mine is we still want them to grow up to be happy, right? But it is really not clear anymore uh, what exact skills will be useful for that objective. And uh, I think right now we are seeing uh, everything shifting so quickly that it's really hard to envision uh, what will be the most valuable cognitive skills in even two years from now, three years from now. Uh, so when, when I'm in conversations, uh, uh, for example, at my university about how we should adjust uh, teaching and testing, my starting point is that um, we 
should not uh, try to stick to the old status quo just out of conservatism and we should try to adjust to this new world and uh, try to our best ability to guess where this is going and I guess certainly adjust to what is already there so that means I'm a strong advocate for letting students use uh, tools like chat GPT for teaching them how to use them best and for incorporating them as much into the curriculum and this will probably be very useful in the next few years but after like two or three years from now I think all bets are off it's so hard to foresee what will be the most cognitive the most useful cognitive skills then the most useful cognitive skills then Okay, I think uh, I think that's probably um, a reasonable place to leave the conversation. Um, you've kind of graciously given me a lot of your time, and I know you're a busy guy. You've got your being interviewed left, right, and center by the media these days on on GPT. Um, for people who are listening to this, I'll provide a link to the paper you wrote on how we can use in economic research. I'll also throw up um, a couple of links to some other things you've you've written or been involved in recently. We didn't get to talk about it, but you did an interesting experiment with a, a dialogue between ChatGPT and another language model called Claude and an economist, very well-known economist who looks a lot at outsourcing and automation, David Order. Um, and I think right. the results of that are, that are quite interesting. Uh, David Order is still out on top, still producing better insights than the uh, language models as of right now, anyway. That was the sort of... Yeah, that was right. I should note... <laughs> That, that was right. I should note, though, that I was still using GPD 3.5 at the time. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, if you're familiar with them, you can kind of tell, I think, from the, from the text of it. Yeah. But it, it, was, it was an interesting exercise. And actually, a Claude performed pretty well, actually, on, on that experiment um, in terms of, yeah, just to, like how it produced arguments on one side of a debate. Whereas I think GPT was a bit more, again, repetitive and maybe generic in, in its responses. But anyway. Yeah. Um, I'll give people a link so they can check that out. Otherwise, just remains for me to thank you for uh, this conversation, Anton. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be on air with you.